Dear listeners of Mormon Discussion Podcast, I'm your host, Bill Real. I just wanted to get with you and just tell you a few cool things that are happening right now with Mormon Discussion Podcast. We are trying like heck to make this uh, podcast improve. And so one of the things that's happened recently is we've had somebody, one of the listeners of the podcast, who's just really good behind the scenes with web development, agree to take on just a ton of different challenges. Uh, Trace, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart uh, for all that you're doing. What this means is this. One is that if you go onto iTunes or Stitcher or any other place, you're going to find that whereas before just the most recent 66 episodes are available, now when you go to these places, you're going to find every one of Mormon Discussion podcast episodes available in those places. And so when you go onto iTunes, you log in, uh, whereas before you would have had to scroll down, you'd see that you were only seeing episode 122 up. Now you're going to see all of them. And so I'm hoping that as you as listeners, you'll be able to go back and listen to all of these episodes and, and cause some of the older ones are really good. I'd recommend uh, white shirts phenomenon, for instance, there's also an episode on April 6th and the birth of Jesus that I would highly recommend uh, to people. A listener favorite is the Our Bad Days episode, which just got an enormous response when it came out. You can go listen to the one I mentioned recently on Mormon Stories of uh, Handshakes and Drawn Swords. But you can go back into the very beginning of the podcast and you can listen to those early episodes when the recording equipment wasn't that great. My my confidence maybe wasn't quite as high but we were still delving into subjects that I think would have a whole lot of appeal uh, to listeners, especially those of you listeners who have jumped on in the last three months, six months, even a year, to go back and listen to a lot of the work early on. Again, the podcast is because of each of you, and and I hope that you realize that it is my my personal goal to reach out to each of you and to help you as you transition through your faith. Another thing that's coming up, by the way, is a, we are updating the premium subscriber feed. And so what had to happen before was that you had to go onto the website and you had to log in and click premium episodes and, uh, and then go to those episodes and download the content and put it on your MP3 player or put it up into iTunes and then put it on your iPod or your iPhone. Then it just became kind of a pain in the neck. And, and I realize that's the way it still is as of right now. But you're going to see here very shortly that we are in the works right now of updating the premium feed so that when you go into certain uh, podcast apps, and I don't know yet whether iTunes this will work out for or not, but when you go into certain uh, podcast apps, you will be able to log in with your username and password and get all of the premium episodes and hopefully as well all the free episodes in one spot. And so that's the stuff that's coming. The other thing, too, is if some of you have donated recently, my time has been really short recently, and I really apologize, but some of you have donated uh, pretty decent amounts lately. And for those of you who have done that, I have not forgotten you. I've, I've stored any messages I've gotten of donations. Soon as I've got some time here, we'll order some new T-shirts, and I'll get those out to you guys. Uh, that's, that's also something that's in, in the works uh, as far as what I want to do. Again, you're going to see lots of things happening. You'll probably see little tiny improvements on the website itself visually, but you're going to see lots of really cool things that happen behind the scenes that make uh, your listening to Mormon Discussion podcast a lot easier, a lot smoother, and a lot more enjoyable. God bless you, and now onto what you've been waiting to hear. 
Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Today's episode is about hope. Today's episode is about giving room for ways in which LGBT changes in our theology and doctrine could happen. Not necessarily that these will, although what I'm saying is that if the church wants to make room for Heavenly Father's LGBT children, there are ways in which we can do that. And I want to go through those today. And I want to line up a way in which we can make these things work. Let's start off with this. One is that this new policy is just that. It's a policy. And the brethren have been very clear this is not a doctrine. It is a policy. And so by its own merit, this leaves them incredible room to take this little thing and just set it completely off to the side and, and at some point just disregard it and, and remove it and get rid of it. And so I think that's, that's one step that allows us to move closer back to where, where those who would be in favor of LGBT inclusiveness uh, could have room. Number two, the church, I think, will have no choice but to begin to validate and accept the science behind why people are uh, gay uh, or why they fall into the LGBT category. Just recently on Mormon Matters, Dr. Bradshaw went at great length to discuss how these, these traits that we each have in terms of our sexuality, how many of these, including uh, same-sex attraction, comes from birth. The church already says that being gay is not a choice, but the church seems to leave open what the exact causes of that are. I think Dr. Bradshaw sets out very firmly that much of this, if not almost all of it, is biological. In such things as having a uh, a third finger on your hand being longer than your middle finger, uh, such things as being the further down the line in terms of children that your mother has that you fall into, the more older brothers you have, the better chance you have of being gay. And there's reasons for these that are biological. There was discussion of, of different, uh, scenarios that when, when studies have been done, that when certain things happen during a pregnancy or there's certain criteria that are met, the chances of one having same sex attraction or being gay increases. And so I think that's, that's inevitable. I think that it's inevitable that, that church leadership more and more talks about, discusses, and internalizes the fact that this is biological. I think that members of the church will have to more and more come to terms that this is biological. The world is going to come to terms with that. And and as that happens, regardless of whether the church wants to change or not, it should be absolutely recognized that there will become there will come great pressure from the outside to to adapt and make changes. That twenty years from now when you, when the missionaries knock on someone's door and offer them the gospel, but say that, you know, we are a church that excludes gay people who are in loving legal relationships, many people are just going to close the door and say no. And they're already closing the door anyway, but, but more of them are going to do that. And when you start to sense that the younger generation of Latter-day Saints are more and more comfortable with inclusiveness of gay people within their friendships, within their families, within their church, that pressure will also continue to build. And as that pressure increases, I think it's inevitable that at least the church will be forced to ask itself questions and to look to try and find a resolution if there is one possible. 
Number three, homosexuality is sin will slowly change over to transgression. This is one of the things the church could do. It could, it could make this argument that we've always taught that homosexuality is sin, but that there's a recognition that a shift could occur and we could now call it a transgression. And we could use Adam and Eve as the model for this in two ways. One is that we talk about sin is openly rebelling against God and breaking his commandments, but we differentiate transgressions. Transgressions at times in our faith have been defined as having two commandments in contradiction to each other, so as to have to break one when keeping the other. In the garden, Adam was presented with two commandments. One was to not partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the other was to multiply and replenish the earth. We are taught as Latter-day Saints that he could not do both, and hence Eve partook of the fruit and Adam followed. But as Heavenly Father said, it must be so. They put the plan of salvation into motion. And because they had to break one when keeping the other, we don't call this a sin. Now look at what the LGBT individuals are faced with. The only option we've given them in the church that we recommend is to be single, alone, the rest of their life. And yet we have Heavenly Father saying it is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for man to be alone. Think about that. God is stating that it is not good, it is not healthy, it is not positive, it is not joyful. It is not a good experience. It is not something he recommends for man to be alone. And yet the only commandment we give our gay brothers and sisters is that homosexuality is sin, and hence, to be faithful and gay, you must be celibate. Now, yes, I get it. A few of our gay brothers and sisters go out and marry some of the opposite gender. Many of those marriages don't work. Some of them do. But that is not a healthy alternative for most. And so, as we begin to see that Heavenly Father has in some ways, or at least the church in some ways, has placed these individuals between having to make a choice of keeping one commandment or another, that we could now lower this idea of it being called sin to being called transgression. Once it becomes a transgression of the law, just as Adam and Eve, there's sure there are consequences but it is no longer this great sin that's second next to murder. Number four, once it is seen as a transgression rather than a sin, the consequences can be much lighter. The church could give permission for preparatory ordinances, such as baptism and Aaronic priesthood. Baptism is a preparatory ordinance. It allows us to enter the gate. Aaronic priesthood is a preparatory priesthood, which prepares us for greater blessings. Allowing our gay members to enjoy those two aspects of our faith would keep so many of them from leaving and would allow us some time to work out the other details. Number five, Jesus in the eunuch and what Christ seems to be teaching. Let me state a few things here. Most of what we have on homosexuality is found in the Old Testament. We also have a few New Testament leaders who are leaning on Old Testament teachings to convey these ideas. But what we don't have, what we don't have is the Book of Mormon, which was written for our day, discussing homosexuality. I find that strange. The Book of Mormon is written for our day, for our day, and it completely ignores homosexuality. Jesus lives on the earth for 33 years. At least three of those years are well documented. The Savior himself takes no opportunity to condemn homosexuality. What he does do The closest thing we have in in him dealing with homosexuality at all 
is when he comes across a eunuch, he looks to the crowd and says that some eunuchs are born this way. Some eunuchs are made this way by others, and some eunuchs choose to live this way as an expression of their faith. And then he says, "Who he who has eyes to see can see, and he who has ears to hear can hear. And then he moves right on and does something else and goes and, and blesses some children or something. The point is that the Savior doesn't discuss, condemn, talk about homosexuality in any kind of negative light and isn't in any of his recorded ministry. I find that to be important. Perhaps what God is saying is that marriage between one man and one woman is the standard designed to multiply and replenish the earth. That in essence, this is the norm, but that God in his majesty and his love has also created other exceptions to the rule, such as polygamy, homosexuality, people who are asexual and have no desire to be with someone else. There are those who are intersex or born with multiple genitalia, with both male and female genitalia, and people who are transgender, who are born with one gender on the outside, but feel deep inside that they are the other. And that these exceptional exceptions are in place to help the rest of us learn to love and learn acceptance of God's creations. You see, once you start to go down the path of realizing how delicate and how complex and how much of a spectrum there is for how we all think differently about sexuality, about intimacy, about romance, about who we're attracted to and who we're not attracted to, and about what we want to do with the rest of our lives, I think one has to come to grips that this issue is way more complex than the average member of the church thinks. Some people want to say, but listen here, wait a minute, so maybe something went wrong in the in the development process of the fetus. And this thing that went wrong is not God's fault. And God is not, you know, behind this. And it would be wrong to to say that God made them this way. But I think that logic falls apart because in our theology, we often speak of those who, even to the extent that people have handicaps or Down syndrome or, or any kind of, of, you know, accident where they lose their leg or any of those kinds of things, in our theology, we say, hey, God knew this. He assigned this challenge. He, 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 the, the, the handicapped kids were the most valiant in the premortal life. And so I think it's, it's not fair to take one set of issues and say that these don't fall on God's shoulders as his responsibility. And yet these other set of issues absolutely do. I don't think we can say that God makes mistakes or that flaws happen. That excuse won't work. We're going to need to accept people for who they are. And we're going to have to stop placing any kind of blame on science or on God. Number six, our theology teaches that it takes a man and woman unified as eternal God and goddesses, priest and priestesses, to create and use priesthood at its fullest. But the question is, what does our doctrine teach? How about little things like two men giving a blessing? Or the fact that the top 15 men of the church who hold all the keys necessary for the salvation of mankind and who have all the authority that our Father in Heaven has given the church. It's 15 men who hold it. How about bigger things? The Godhead is three male personages. Heavenly Mother is absent. Where is she? Now, I want to make it an ex- extreme example here. I'm going to preface it with this. 
I've often made mention on the podcast that that the worlds were created by two men, Adam as Michael and Jesus as Jehovah. So Michael and Jehovah, two men working together, created the world. I had a friend recently as we're having a discussion, I've got, I've got some really good friends who I can bounce ideas off of and they can bounce ideas off us and we get in really great conversations and talk deeply about our faith. And it was he that pointed out, Bill, are you making this connection that, that Michael and Jehovah creating this earth is contradictory to our theological expectation of the life hereafter? You see, two men create the earth. Think about that. How significant that our only doctrinal example runs counter to the theology we teach. The theology we teach is that husband and wife, as inheritors of the celestial kingdom, the highest glory of the celestial kingdom, will enjoy God's creative powers. And we speculate in our theology, and yes, the Mormon newsroom and and the church essay have now tried to soften this and put this down a little bit. But our theology has always taught us that we're going to be out there creating things. We're going to be out there making worlds and, and, and sending more spirit children down to, to enjoy the same plan of salvation. However that occurs, we teach it that it's a man and a woman sealed together by the Holy Spirit of promise who endure to the end and inherit the highest glory of the celestial kingdom. And yet the only actual doctrinal example we have is of two men who are not father, son, but who are spiritual brothers going out and creating this earth. Now, I'm not saying that Jehovah and Michael are gay, and I don't want that kind of a conclusion being drawn. I don't want anybody out there listening to make that kind of supposition. That's that's crazy. What I am saying, though, is that our theology allows room for two men who are not in a parent-child relationship to work together to create worlds. Think about that. Ponder on that. Spend spend a week just thinking about what our theology says and what our actual doctrinal example is. Now, this should give us pause. We should realize that we don't know everything and that we should realize our theological assumptions are faulty to at least some extent. That maybe it's true. Maybe men and women sealed together do practice creative powers. Absolutely, I'm okay with that. But I think it would be wrong to say that two people of the same gender do not when we have an actual doctrinal example that they do. Now, once we come to grips with this, we can now begin to ask questions, seeking further light and knowledge. So now I come to number seven. The last point I want to make, we have to have a new revelation. If this is going to occur, whether this revelation happens at the beginning of all of this discussion or whether it happens at the end, a revelation has to happen. Now, hold on a moment. Most members of the church think think that a revelation means that Jesus shows up in the room and tells the 15 men what to have, what has to happen. But let me say this, that's not the case. So for, for the brethren, for the top 15, you guys can take a breath of fresh air for a moment. You don't have to have Jesus come into the room. In fact, you only have to look back to 1978 and ask what happened there. What happened was all 15 men were having discussions and talking about the, the consequences of not allowing blacks to have the priesthood and what the benefits would be of letting them have the priesthood. There was discussion from Hubie Brown who suggested that, hey, let's have them, let them have the ironic priesthood. Let's start there. And as people see these folks serving, there's going to be no choice but to let them in, right? Again, giving them the preparatory priesthood, 
coincidence? Maybe, maybe not. These 15 men, with Spencer W. Kimball leading the way, they are, he's going to each of these men one-on-one, talking to them and saying, look, you know, this is where we're at. This is what's going to happen. Here's how we're going to be seen. Here's what's going on. You know, here's what, what, how do you think about this? What do you feel about that? Here's how I think. Here's how I feel. And then in the process of a few years, he's able to get all 15 men to be on board. They're all in agreement. And when they're all in agreement, they get together and they feel a spiritual, communal inspired thought that now is the time, that now is the time to put this behind us and to move forward. And it meant having to address some issues within our theology, some issues within our doctrine. It meant having to say things that were once thought and believed to be doctrine no longer are, but they did it. They did it. And it was just a few years prior to that, that some of the harshest statements were coming out where Marky Peterson at BYU said, yeah, blacks can go to the celestial kingdom, but they can only really go as servants to serve the rest of us. Where Elder McConkie would talk about uh, some of these issues in some of the books he wrote where just a few years earlier than that, his father-in-law, Joseph Fielding Smith, would speak on these same things. And each of them, each of these men who spoke out negatively against blacks having the priesthood stated that they would never have the priesthood. And even Brigham Young said they would never have it until all of the white children of our Father in Heaven enjoyed such blessings. Again, our faith has a history of tossing pieces and parts that no longer fit aside. And I'm suggesting that there is room here. So these 15 men just need to get together, ask the right questions, get all 15 men on board. And when that happens, if they each feel spiritually inclined to make these kinds of changes, they could. And so what I'm saying is that for those of you who say, wow, I can't believe this policy happened. It's obvious that we're never going to self-correct this. I simply plead that you might recognize that there is hope. And that this very well could change. And I have just laid out to you how that might happen. This paints a plausible, workable plan to back away from the corner that we have painted ourselves into. And to do a complete 180 turnaround from our, from our current doctrine and present stance. This should be seen as a way to offer hope for those who have felt distanced by this policy. This should add room to stay in and to wait this thing out. This should help us to see that we have reasonable room for such hope. May the Lord warm your shoulders. May our God bless us with peace in these kinds of times where we struggle so deeply. May each of us feel an increase in strength to go forward is my sacred prayer in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen.